Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this 13th lesson in our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, we will see important and encouraging developments in the history of our faith from Paul's missionary work in the ancient city of Corinth. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18 and join us as we learn to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. We live for a kingdom that is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, but that has a lot of ramifications for how we conduct ourselves in this life. And we will see as Paul engages with some people who really didn't know what uh, life lived to the glory of God in many areas of their lives in the city of Corinth, we will see Paul uh, bringing that eternal perspective to a group of people who truly needed to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So welcome to all the men here. Welcome to all the men and women. There's no shame in that. There are some women who join us online. We are just grateful that we can learn from God's word together. And we are on this journey together as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. It is a series of journeys, and we're going to see even from the account that we look at today, as we are in the 13th installment, at 13, that's, that's, a, that's a great journey that we've been on today, the 13th installment as Paul goes to the city of ancient Corinth in Acts chapter 18. I was really grateful for Dale's teaching last week, Dale, I'm grateful for your teaching every week, not just last week, but as you took us through Paul's encounters with the Areopagus or Mars Hill in the city of Athens and how Paul was so agitated by the idols that he saw in the culture that he was surrounded by. And a reminder to us that we should be likewise agitated in a way that's, that's righteous for God's glory and God's truth by the idols that we see in our day and age because they are plenty. And as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 18, we will see that Paul is um, encountering a culture that in different ways in the city of Athens, because we'll look at some of the, the uniqueness of the city of Corinth, a city and a culture and a people that uh, needed to understand the practical implications of how the gospel of Jesus Christ not only changed their eternal destiny, but also the practical way that they lived. And uh, some of that will get into the background of, um, of the city of Corinth as we look at this chapter. So, no surprise, we have a map. And if you're joining us online, or maybe this is your first time here in a long time in person, I, I love a good map. I'm not necessarily saying this is a great map, but I think it's a helpful map as it outlines Paul's third missionary, or second missionary journey. Uh, this will take us to, towards the end of his second missionary journey. And then we'll hear from Max next week in the picking up of his third missionary journey. Um, we can get some pretty precise dating for what's happening here, especially in the city of Corinth, with some of the historical figures that are going to be mentioned in the text um, Paul's missionary journey, number two, was essentially A.D. 49 to 51, and we get some pretty precise historical archaeological evidence that tells us about even the events that are going to be happening in the text that we read today, which is always exciting to me, and I always want to remind us that we are talking about 
real people experiencing real events in very real human history. And that is the word of God, which is rooted in that very real human experience in human history. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's not lore. It's historical. And to me, that gives me even more excitement when I have that deeper confidence that this actually took place because we can obviously trust God's word. So if you look at this map, you see on the, on the right, you see Asia. You see the bottom right, Jerusalem, and that's uh, where Paul would eventually end up. But if you go to the left-hand side of the map, you see that red circle. It's around the region of Achaia, which is a, this, a part of southern Greece today. And you see the city of Corinth is kind of in the middle. So I'm going to zoom in on this map. You get two maps for the price of one. This is all free, by the way, guys. And right in the middle of this landmass called the Peloponnese and the other part of Achaia, you have this city of Corinth. Now, a few facts about the city of Corinth. It was 50 miles west of Athens. So Paul left Athens and he headed 50 miles west to the city of Corinth. Uh, It is the capital of this region of ancient Greece called Achaia, and it is actually the largest city in ancient Greece, not Athens, but Corinth. Some estimate maybe 200,000 people. And within the whole Roman Empire, Corinth was probably the third largest city, Rome being the largest, Alexandria being the second, and then Corinth being the third largest. So that makes strategic sense that Paul would once again head to this urban center that he, I'm sure, heard about and now has the opportunity to move from Athens to Corinth. Now, what made Corinth unique is if you see where it's located, you have this large landmass to the south, and then you have this almost mainland to the north. Connecting those two is a very thin strip of land. Does anybody know from their geography lessons from fourth grade, maybe, what a thin strip of land that connects two masses of land is called? Isthmus. It's an isthmus. I can't even say it right. But Bob, you know, you were about to raise your hand. You knew. (laughs) Charisthmus. Anyway, that's great. So so Corinth was on this isthmus, and that made it a significant uh, trade center. And the reason was, if you look at where uh, ships would bring their goods in to that port around Athens and Corinth, for those ships to make that journey all the way around that Peloponnese landmass to the other side, and then eventually to go out to the Ionian Sea, was a dangerous 200-mile journey by ocean. And so what they would prefer to do to move their goods is they had these large wooden rollers with these platforms on them that they would move the goods. They'd unload them from the ship and then move them across the 3.5-mile isthmus, which was a much safer and more predictable way to transport their goods and more cost-effective. They wouldn't damage their ships, and then they'd be able to move them throughout the other parts of Achaia and up up to Greece. So Corinth became a really important point and trade center because of this, because it was located right in this very strategic place where merchants would come and go. So it was a very transient city, but it was also very culturally and religiously diverse. And it was a significant place of trade. And it was, it was really considered in the ancient world one of the cultural centers. If you look at Athens as sort of an intellectual center, 
Corinth was more like the cosmopolitan place to be in the ancient world. One commentator said it was kind of like a Chicago. And maybe that's right. But I remember when taking a class on the book of 1 Corinthians, we were pointed to some sources. And uh, one author, uh, Gordon Fee, who my good friend Dale South has been known to say in a meeting he does not take to be a liberal. So uh, we maybe can, we can trust Gordon Fee and his scholarship. He said that ancient Corinth was part New York, part Los Angeles, and part Las Vegas. It brought all of those dynamics of all of those cities from its, uh, from its business to its cosmopolitan culture and to its sexual ethics. And that's what Corinth was known for most famously in the ancient world because it was culturally diverse and religiously and sexually perverse. In fact, a, a professor that I had named Tom Constable, has this to say about the city of ancient Corinth. The city was infamous for its immorality that issued from two sources. One, its numerous transients, all of those traitors that were simply coming from and passing through. Its numerous transients and its temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love. And here, devotees promoted immorality in the name of religion. Her temple, which boasted 1,000 religious prostitutes, stood on the Acro Corinth, which was a 1,857-foot flat-topped mountain just outside the city. It is easy to understand why sexual problems plagued the Corinthian church. And if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul wastes no time getting into the dysfunctional sexual ethics of this people. They had everything going on, everything from a man sleeping with his father's, his stepmom, essentially, to uh, wives that were withholding that enjoyment in the marriage relationship from their husbands, and the husbands choosing to go to these temple prostitutes to meet the need, so to speak. And, and Paul had to step in and say, listen, brothers, because he, we're going to read about, he, he establishes this church. And right away, the church is met with the culture and the church is being drawn into the culture in ways that were um, not just perverting their lives, but perverting the gospel. Uh, sexual immorality was such a problem in ancient Corinth that even 500 years before Paul even got there in the fifth century B.C., the term to Corinthianize was a synonym for sexual immorality. Here Paul finds himself in this city by himself to figure out how he's going to bring the gospel message of hope in Jesus Christ to see a people transformed and a culture transformed for the kingdom. Uh, it was uh, also a place, by the way, here are some pictures of um, the actual ruins of this temple of Aphrodite on this Acro Corinth, this high mountaintop overlooking the, uh, the area. And then a, a re, um, essentially what someone has reestablished as what it could have looked like in the ancient world. Um, so how is Paul going to approach this? Let's dive into the text and see how Paul's ministry in Corinth would go. And we're going to take it section by section, and the first few verses, 1 through 4, in Acts chapter 18, are recruitment. 
So we'll start reading in Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, again about 50 miles to the west. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the emperor, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul's approach is interesting. Here he finds himself alone to start because Silas and Timothy were not yet there. They were in Athens um, and they were in Ephesus, but they would eventually meet him as we'll see in the next verse. So what does Paul do when he is alone looking to do work for Jesus Christ? He realizes this is not a solo act. This is not a every man's an island unto himself. Paul realizes that he needs others. And so he finds a faithful Jewish Christian couple, Priscilla, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, or Prisca. And these two people would become indispensable companions to Paul as he would experience the gospel ministry in the city of Corinth and beyond. We'll get to that towards the end of our time about how important these two people were as Paul recruited them for the missionary journey. Um, The text tells us that they were recently exiled from Rome and had left Italy because of an edict that was issued by the emperor, Tiberius Claudius Nero Germanicus, here known as Claudius. And he ruled from AD 41 to 54, right before Emperor Nero. So this is the guy who was in office right before Emperor Nero was. And we actually know that his edict expelling the Jews was issued in AD 49. This comes from history. This is why we can be very precise about these very real events. And um, the problem is that what was happening is that Christians in the name of Christ were... um, were sharing the gospel in in Rome. And as a result of this, the Jews were becoming very combative of that. And the Jews, as they were known to do, who were concerned because they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, uh, were spreading rumors and causing some dissension. And there there was some political turmoil and some civil turmoil that was happening. And so according to the historian Suetonius, Claudius misunderstood that there was a, um, a political insurrectionist named Crestus who was somewhere in the city of Rome and he was connected to the Jews and this Crestus must be telling his people, the Jews, that they are to um, overthrow the emperor. And so as a result of it, the Jews are now being forced to leave. So if you were an ethnic Jew, you were being forced to leave. So the emperor had a misunderstanding. He thought that there was a, a man named Crestus who was telling his followers, we've got to get the emperor off the throne because I am the new emperor and king. And so you can see how even what was intended to be the true message is that Christ is the true king and his followers were predominantly Jewish, that somehow as that communication worked its way up the ranks of the political hierarchy of the day, that the misunderstanding led to an edict being passed where all Jews were being told to get out of the city of Rome. Those who were who followed Jesus and those who did not. So Priscilla 
and Aquila, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, were moving on. And so they, they found themselves. I don't know why they ended up in a city like Corinth. Um, maybe they knew these people need to know the message of Jesus, but God brought them and Paul together. And they were both tent makers. Tent makers, maybe leather workers is a more appropriate uh, word than tent maker, although certainly leather workers worked in all kinds of trades around that. Where Paul was from, leather working was a common trade. And so what Paul did is he always took the approach of not wanting to be a financial burden to the people that he ministered to. So he always made sure that he did everything he could to provide for his own financial needs. Now, in our day and age, it is totally fine to support missionaries financially, and I encourage you to do that. We live in a, in a different culture, a different society, a different time, where the support financially of generous brothers and sisters in Christ really does help the furthering of the gospel for those who do not have the means to support themselves. But Paul was able to support himself as a tent maker or leather worker in the ancient world. And so we know that uh, Paul would not do his missionary work alone as he partnered with Aquila and Priscilla. And what we find, too, is that Paul took the, the typical modus operandi of his missionary work, which was to move from the synagogues to the streets. So once again, he starts in the synagogue, a place that he had a lot of connection with. And here in the city of Corinth, he begins to share the gospel partnering, discipling, training up Aquila and Priscilla to be partners with him. And the text tells us that he reasoned with the Jews and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. That word for reasoned is dialogenomai, or dialegomai, which is where we get our English word dialogue. So he was really trying to have a dialogue, although most likely he was more teaching them and inviting some of that conversation along the way. So that's the recruitment. That's the recruitment side of how Paul begins. What a smart way to begin when you're showing up somewhere alone, especially in a place as perverse and lost as ancient Corinth. Well, then we move to the second section, which is the reassurance, verses 5 through 11. Let's pick up the action there. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, so they, they are finally arriving, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Silas and Timothy are joining Paul again, and it's a good thing because um, that allowed Paul to turn his attention more fully to uh, proclaiming the word, to be occupied with the word. One's translation says he was wholly absorbed with the teaching of the word and telling the Jews that the Christ, this Messiah, this great king and hoped for figure in their faith was actually Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul's message has not changed. If you notice that, you go back several chapters, that's what he's saying. Jesus is the Christ. Here he's saying the Christ is Jesus and pointing people to Jesus Christ. Now, verse six, and when they opposed him and reviled him, the word reviled there is blasphemed. That is a significant um, disrespect towards something that is holy and true. But they reviled him or blasphemed him. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
Shaking out his cloak was very similar to when Jesus told his disciples, when you go into a, a house or a community and they reject you, then shake the dust of your feet off in a, as a form of judgment. It was a way of saying, you are rejecting this message and I am shaking off even the dust from your community to say that I am innocent. I have done my part. You are choosing to reject this message of truth that I am bringing. And so uh, Paul tells them, I have told you the truth. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Uh, that is something Paul has said in the past. Paul still hangs with the Jews. He still ministers to the Jews, but he realizes that the fruitful ministry that he will experience is ultimately going to come from the Gentiles. And that's something that's even interesting today. The hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life-transforming, eternally changing salvation message of Jesus Christ are Jews. They are the most resistant people, the least open people to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And Paul experienced that in his day as a Jew himself. And he knew that ultimately he would find more fruit and success in God building his kingdom through his ministry to the Gentiles. But he still would minister to the Jews. I don't want us to think that he completely gave up on them. He didn't care for them. He, he wanted so much for his fellow Jewish brethren to know that Jesus was the Christ and the true Savior. So verse uh, 7 says, And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So here this man, Titius Justus, was a Gentile who followed the way of the Jews, but he would not go all the way and be circumcised. He was a God-fearer. And then we may think, okay, well, maybe Paul didn't have successful ministry in the synagogue, but, but yet, what do we read here in verse 8? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we begin to see that God is indeed still doing this incredible work of, of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And even uh, Crispus himself, who is the synagogue president, essentially, he's the leader, he's the head honcho. This influential man, he, God brings him from death to life in faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And many of the Corinthians, and they were baptized. So we begin to see even in this difficult culture, this difficult place, this difficult ministry, God is still doing some incredible work. I'm encouraged by um, what we read about even as Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And so we find that uh, Paul didn't do the majority of the baptizing. Probably Aquila and Priscilla helped him. Probably Silas and Timothy helped him. But many people were baptized and coming to faith in Christ. And then God gives Paul this incredible word of reassurance that we find in verses 9 through 11. Because I imagine Paul could have gotten discouraged, and yet God lovingly comes alongside him and gives him these words. Where he, and he writes the following. Luke writes the following in verses 9 and through 11. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. 
for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Um, Warren Wearsby, who many know as a, a biblical teacher and pastor, author, writes, Paul knew that God already had people set apart for salvation. He stayed where he was and preached the gospel with faith and courage. Paul's responsibility was to obey the commission. God's responsibility was to save sinners. So we see Paul with this word of reassurance from God himself stays for a year and a half, which was a long time for him. This probably comprised most of his second missionary journey, a year and a half in the city, in this community, seeing God build this church, seeing people brought to faith and fruit for the gospel because of this great word of promise that God had given him. That I will protect you. Do not worry. Continue to speak. What a wonderful gift that God gave him. And it would prepare Paul for what would happen next. And what happens next so the final section for our verses today is a retaliation of sorts, but it's an ironic re- retaliation. So we pick up the action in verse 12. And remember those words that God said, I, do, not, um, do not fear, I am with you. No one will harm you. And this is one of those things that, um, that Bill said as he prayed, we, we come to the word and we see new things. This was something new that I just had a connection I hadn't made as I studied for this passage. Verse 12, uh, but when Gallio, come back to that name in just a moment, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Uh, just, uh, this is where the, the real history gets, uh, for me kind of geeking out on this stuff, guys, the real history of this gets pretty interesting and pretty specific um, where we have archaeological evidence that backs up the Bible. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. But when historic fact supports what our faith professes, for me, that's always an encouragement. I have a friend who's convinced that ultimately science, he's an atheist, ultimately science will just prove that um, you know, evolution is the truth, the Bible is not real, and, and there is no such thing as God. And uh, We keep going on, and the more that we do science and research and archaeological discoveries, it supports this incredible truth that we proclaim in the Bible. Uh, And that is similar to uh, this figure, Gallio. Now, uh, Gallio's full name, again, if you have children, grandchildren that are thinking about having having a baby this year, these could be some options for you. Uh, Lucius Junius Gallio served as proconsul from July 1st, 51 through 52. Uh, He was a famous, well-known, well-loved, well-liked individual. This was, to us, a name that just is another name. But in the ancient world, this was a guy who had some serious connections and clout. His father was a man named Seneca, who was a great rhetorician in ancient Rome. His brother shared the same name, Seneca. It's sort of like George Foreman named all his kids George. Um, So uh, Seneca had a son named Seneca, who was the brother of Gallio. His brother Seneca was the tutor of the emperor Nero, which is interesting. Um, There is an ancient engraving 
in this that was found, um, or I should say some ancient fragments that were found in the temple of Delphi when some archaeology was done many years ago. And this Gallio inscription was discovered. And what this shows is this was an inscription of a document that was essentially written by the emperor, and he mentions Gallio by name. And he mentions how Gallio started his reign as proconsul on July 1st of AD 51. And we have a picture of that. That red, um, that red rectangle right there is the name Gallio on this ancient fragment. And it's now housed in a museum in Delphi today. Um, like I said, he was very popular. He was well-liked. His own brother wrote the following about him. No mortal is so pleasant to any person as Gallio is to everyone. Wouldn't that be great if people said that about us? Seneca also wrote about his brother, even those who love my brother Gallio to the uttermost of their power do not love him enough. He was a well-loved and liked individual. And he served as proconsul. Now, what this means, and I, I did not understand how important and significant this was, is uh, proconsul was part governor, part Supreme Court justice. So whenever a proconsul made a legal decision within the Roman Empire, that decision would then get disseminated and shared by other proconsuls around the empire. It was sort of like uh, case law within our American legal system. When a decision is made, it impacts decisions that are made surrounding similar cases of nature. And so uh, because of that, these Jews who knew his popularity, knew his power, everyone's trying to bend the ear of the new guy in office, right? That's why you have you know, lobbyists that flock to the new politicians and say, hey, I want you to be thinking about this. Can you keep this pack in mind for me? Can you look after the interests of my people? The Jews went to this new political ruler and they were convinced that they were going to persuade him to oust Paul and his followers in the church from the city of Corinth. It would not happen like that. Remember, remember God's words to Paul. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will protect you. So let's read what's happening. I just, it, it, for me, it's exciting, guys, to know that this guy is a real person in history and really well-known. And the Jews understood this. And that's why they bring Paul and bring him to the tribunal. The word tribunal is the, the bema seat, this platform, almost like a raised platform or a bench where a judge would sit and make his decisions. And what they, they, verse 13 says, they're saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. In other words, this man is saying that Gentiles do not have to follow the ways of the Mosaic law that we believe they are supposed to follow. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, you just imagine Paul, he's so used to speaking up and defending himself. Before he even opens his mouth, Gallio steps in, cuts him off and says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, very much like Pilate, Gallio is saying, this is not a matter that concerns me. This is not a a criminal matter. This is not even a civil matter. This is a ceremonial matter that you Jews need to handle yourself. This does not have anything to do with the legal counsel of the empire of Rome. Deal with it yourselves. 
And then apparently because of, we know what the mob mentality is like because maybe of people stirring up and the, the excitement and the angst and the anger. We read in verse 16, he drove them from the tribunal. It was probably a somewhat chaotic, forceful, leave my presence. And then verse 17, and they, believing this to be um, Gentile observers in the crowd, we just imagine there's a lot of noise, a lot of confusion. These Gentile observers seize Sosthenes, who is the ruler of the synagogue, the leader of the Jews, who probably came after Crispus, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It's almost like he's really saying, however you're, however you're handling this, I really don't care. And so even though the Jews intended for there to be a retribution against Paul, remember God's words to Paul, I will protect you, do not fear. The Jews, it was flipped. And the Jews were the ones who actually were seeking to oppose the gospel. They experienced some of the consequences that they were hoping Paul would experience. So instead of punishing Paul and his companions, the Jews themselves were punished. And that's the connection that I hadn't thought about before, that God had said, do not fear, I am with you. Continue preaching the gospel. So as we think about this passage of Paul bringing this message alone and showing up and not knowing how the Lord was going to provide, what can we learn as we follow Jesus Christ today? These are principles that I believe are trustworthy and true that we find all throughout Scripture The first is that God provides for his people. And in this case, God really provided relationally for Paul. Paul was alone. Aquila and Priscilla happened to be there as well, and God brought them together. And like I said, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla would become indispensable companions for Paul. He was probably overwhelmed by this culture and the the sexual perversion and the lostness in a different way than he was in Athens, right, Dale, where he saw... The, the idolatry and the intellectual rejection of God. Here he saw uh, a different kind of idolatry and a, a moral rejection of everything that God would be about. And God provides these people who later in Romans chapter 16, we read, Paul writes, greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is another name for Priscilla. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risk their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. What a a great provision by God providing for Paul relationships that would sustain him in ministry and would keep sustaining him and not just be a blessing to Paul, but be a blessing to so many other people. God provides for his people. And maybe for you, you're maybe feeling like Paul a little bit, maybe a little bit alone. God desires and has people for you to connect with and live life with. That's why I'm I'm grateful that we can even gather in small groups as we will in just a few moments, just to share life in Christ together because God provides for his people. Next, God keeps his promises. Now, this is one of the most encouraging truths about our God that I continue to hold to as a follower of Christ. Even when Things seem difficult and they're always outside of my control. I know that God is always faithful to his promises. He told Paul, don't worry, I am with you. And sure enough, he protected Paul and allowed Paul to continue ministering in Corinth. I'm reminded of 
1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. And guys, those online, as we think about all the promises that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, the gospel proves that God is trustworthy. We have no reason to doubt his faithfulness, even when our lives seem to be falling apart and the world around us seems to be falling apart as well. God will be completely faithful. He will fulfill some of those promises to us now in this life, as he has, And he will fulfill all those promises ultimately in the age to come when we are with Jesus Christ and see him face to face. Our final principle is that God works his purposes. Uh, I mentioned this, but I found out that this was really the case. Because of the decision that Gallio made not to condemn Paul, not to reject the Christian faith, not to oust it from the community of Corinth, that decision would then be shared with other governing leaders and proconsuls around the whole community and empire of Rome, which was the expanse of the world really at the time. That meant that Christianity and the furthering of the gospel was given a bit more foothold throughout the Roman Empire and recognized as a legitimate expression of religious belief in the Roman Empire. Now, it it didn't become the official religion, but it it was given more traction because of this one decision of this one man not to reject it on his tribunal watch. And that to me was fascinating to think about, that that allowed for uh, followers of Christ to be given more recognition in order that they might have more more of a foothold to share their faith with those in their community. Now that would, to some extent, be thwarted when Nero came to power several years later, and he would then blame the Christians for fire that burned much of the city of Rome, even though Nero was the one that did it himself. Um, and Christianity would come under would come under intense persecution. But it shows how, um, in a season of fruitfulness, God can allow the gospel to spread, and even in a season of want, the gospel can still spread as well. But that was fascinating to me that uh, the, the Christian faith was furthered because of the one decision of this political ruler. And that's just a reminder to us that God does work his purposes in all things. A reminder of these great words from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of feeling like our, the moral, social, political culture of our country is in decay, because yes, it is, we can trust that God is faithful, that he works his purposes, and that he desires for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the best part is, guys, he calls us to join him in this great work. Which is why we can say with the Apostle Paul, let's say these words together from 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And let's say together Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's because Paul modeled a life surrender to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Thank you for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you'll join us next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, 
please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week and God bless.